Hello, everybody. We're at the Stanza Poetry Festival 2015. Uh, before we get to the episode today where we're going to have Hannah Silva, uh, it's just to be honest, it's a repeat. We've played it before, but it's one of our favorites, and it's from the 2013 Stanza Festival, and, and we love Hannah Silva, and we're really happy to be sharing that with you. But before we start, we just got a brief conversation with two poet laureates, two mockers, one from Glasgow, it's Jim Carruth. Hello. And uh, one from Edinburgh, it's Christine DeLuca. Hello. And, and we're just going to have a quick conversation about some unfinished projects you guys might have had, things that you you might have tried and failed at or let go of or things that were just too ambitious or too expensive. I know that, uh, Christine, you were planning a big budget uh, action film that uh, obviously you couldn't get the funding for. <laughs> you must be joking. <laughs> I am joking. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I've, I've abandoned uh, sewing things and knitting things uh, over the years and several poems. And sometimes I, I think I should have abandoned more of them. But the, the thing which I have never really got to grips with is a second novel. I fell into a first one quite beyond me really but I did finish it and I loved doing it but it did drive poetry away and that was a bit of a problem. But the second one was one I really did want to write set in Shetland where I come from 1780s based on a true story of a ship which got blown an emigrant ship on its way to America got blown all the way to the little Vaux, the little inlet that I was brought up in couple of hundred people on board and they got stuck there for a whole winter and had to be billeted out and the thought of that to me is I mean I'd never heard this until quite recently and to me that was the stuff of a novel and the people who eventually made it to America the people who stayed in Shetland the people who got eventually back to to Leith or somewhere but the problem the main problem is oh that's a lot of work but the other big problem is the local people would have to speak authentically and so a huge chunk of it would have to be written in proper, authentic Shetland dialect. And just to water it down is just not good enough. So I'm kind of abandoned it, I think. Oh, man, but it's such a good sounding story. It sounds immediately like everybody's going to just steal that idea and want to do it. No, they won't. No, but, but maybe I'll write two versions of it. It's a really good idea. And why, why the resistance to water down Shetlandic or try to make Shetland, or just why not write it fully in Shetlandic? Is that well, too onerous? No, it's not onerous. Well, it would take a lot of work, and, but it would be a, a joy. Um, but it's uh, difficult for people maybe to read. And I think people want to turn a page in prose. With poetry, they might put up with it. But in prose, they do want to know what's happening on the next page. And if it's, you know a bit more difficult I think you get the resistance in so I'd love to do it kind of you know turn it upside down and start from the other end and you get it in English uh, or do it uh, have notes on the side or something to help you but I, I really don't want to water it down that's the thing a glossary do you want to put a glossary in oh, well glossary's fine but mm, not, I just still haven't solved that problem so it's probably an abandoned ship I think Jim do you have, do you have any thoughts on, uh, on a way Christine could solve this because it does sound like a great idea right it's, it seems too good to let it be gone to let it to pass it up I think it's about time plus. You know, I remember listening to Andrew Gregg, and he said he couldn't do poetry and prose at the same time. So he had to write the novel or write the poetry, and uh, that's exactly the time thing. 
it's just the scale of it. I mean, I think when you, you do so much work as a poet, the idea of writing a novel, just, it's like a marathon. You think, well, you know, you go over one page in poetry, and you always say I get a nosebleed. So the idea of 300 pages of prose is just a Even reading it sometimes scares me. So I'm not surprised <laughs> that uh, it, it should be scaring the, the, the potential writer. Yeah, I, would, I, I think just the length of it would put me right off. But no, that doesn't put me off. It's this, this linguistic barrier. That's the thing that puts me off. That's interesting. Well, I'm, I'm going to have a thing about it. If, I, if, if, if a solution occurs to me, yeah. I will call you. Do that, do yeah, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jim, well, what about yourself? You have a, a many long-term projects. I think so. I, was, uh, I suppose I haven't been put off by the projects yet, but uh, I, I'm thinking of one that uh, uh, in 2004, uh, I brought out my uh, first pamphlet, which was Bovine Passerelle, and I quite liked the, the form, the, the 20 poems, and I felt it would be part of a longer cycle. So every collection I bring out is 20 poems in terms of the cycle, and I always envisaged it as being 12 and uh, you know we're what we're 2015. You're lucky if it, you're at six. I've got five published and one unpublished, but we got a cycle of six. And uh, you know my uh, Hamish White was a manuscript publisher was saying, well, you're not going to finish it, are you? It's our, he's got a sense that it's going to run out of. Uh, yes. But he's just spurring you on, he's isn't spurring it? Spurring me on, yes. And it, I was very keen to bring a lot of language in. So that the cycles today have had uh, agricultural language footers. And, you know, that's part of it, trying to paint the landscape. And uh, I think the reason I thought 12 uh, as a cycle would be that together they would paint this agriculture community that, you know, by the time they're finished, I think would be uh, lost possibly. And, you know, so there is a, there's a very real driver there and it's just coming in from different perspectives and pulling off. But genuinely, uh, I've got a sense of the next couple of cycles, but after that, there is a, a big gap in how I finish the project. Do you think part of the project is the time required between pamphlets? Possibly. Or could you just bash them? Could you bash four cycles out? No, well, what I've done in the past is not necessarily looked at it uh, in terms of um, what might be seen as a linear approach. It's not telling a story it's mapping a landscape and I've always found poems I haven't just put the next 20 into the you know uh, uh, cycle number three I've tried to find um, poems that are saying something to each other so I put poems aside in different fields so when that field is complete then it's a cycle. You know, I've explored a certain element of it. So there are poems and in, in, in bits of fields out there, but not enough to do the complete cycle. It's like a rural version of The Wire. Oh, yes, definitely. And that's maybe good. That really is probably good perspective on it. Well, I need to come in and look at it for everything. And together, I, I can see the cycles talk to each other. But within the cycle, I want uh, an element of coherence. So uh, I'm partly stuck. You know, it's not another 20 point. I'm stuck with the, the, the structure needing the cycle to have a story to tell within itself. Uh, so I've got bits of fields, but not the complete. Most recently, it was a lot with your father, wasn't it? Yes. quite recently it's strange I mean I've had to deal with, it, with both the parents uh, deaths and, and uh, I almost imagine it was something I would present them living uh, uh, and that's been a, a, an interesting sort of oh because you can actually see them aging and, uh, and dealing with their deaths within the cycle which was not something I would imagine was going to happen because it was going to be something you know it's a celebration or, uh, of the rural landscape and it was going to be something I would physically hand over and that's not going to be the case and uh, it has it definitely has changed the sense of what I'm going to do and you know in terms of finishing it off so it has uh, uh, life's gotten away is there something you have, have been working on for 10 years and you, uh, that just got put out yeah uh, Killer Crease uh, is a, a verse novella 
that I've been working on for 10 years and it's out next month. And uh, I don't know why, I haven't thought, we talked about the fact that verse, you know, the idea of a, of a novel would be very off-putting. Uh, I got into the idea of having, um, putting two very uh, different individuals uh, on a hillside on a, an isolated sheep farm, you know, an old shepherd uh, and uh, uh, well, an urban-based academic, uh, both with their own issues, and putting them in that area of isolation over a 12-month period and seeing what fun ensues. And uh, I've picked at it um, for the, I was going to say, the length of a single malt, and it's very, very sparse, the different aspects of relationship and little fragments of what either reveals the change in the relationship or are typical of the relationship and following through uh, these two individuals uh, working at an isolated sheep farm for 12 months, approximately. What was, what was the catalyst for getting it out? What, what, what took so long? Was it, the, was it the actual writing or was it, was it something else holding you back? I wrote the sequence, the first draft of the sequence, probably about seven years ago, and I've just picked away at it because I didn't feel that the narrative was strong enough, you know, what I wanted to say, and I kept offering up to people, and a lot of it was interesting, a lot of it was about space, very few words, because they're not talking to you, they're very, um, you know, uh, in terms of individuals, and how working the space on the page so a lot of it was to do with the white page and trying to get that to give an idea of how sparse and uh, and extreme you know the conditions are uh, in you know hill farm at that time of year and stuff so it, it was to do with the look of it and try and get that right balance so it, it started probably <coughs> with lots more words and just picking away to you know it was much more like little fragments of basho or something and a, a journey that they go on on the same hill together over the period of 12 months so uh, initially I wanted someone to take it off me and then I was keeping it to myself I thought no I'll, I'll not give it up yet but there is it'll be out next month so so it does give me hope for some of these other things that sit in the background. Maybe, you know, it's, I've completed, you know, you just hand it over to someone else. And <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that idea that maybe, yeah. maybe these things aren't, aren't like retired yet. I've got a thing about 12, isn't it? I mean, that's 12, 12 months they were together, wasn't it? And then you want this 12 poem sequences. You've got a wee sort of thing about 12. Could be. I mean, okay, okay. It's strange. With, with the sequence, it's, um, I finished uh, last year, but it, it's still talking to me. I think, oh, I didn't see that in it. You know, the, there's all these surprises. So maybe it is 12, maybe it's to do you know, with the seasons and, uh, and the cycle through the year. So you know, maybe that was always there. But uh, poets don't always know everything about their own poems and what the poems are talking to them about. So that could well be it. Well, I look, I look forward to the continuation of the cycle. And Christine, please, please write that book. I'll do my, or maybe I should have an audio book. Yeah, maybe just tell the story. Maybe you should get into storytelling. Yeah, that might be the idea because people find it easier to listen than to, to read the stuff, you know? And you don't have to write it down. Oh, I'd want to write it down as well. As well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, thank you both very, very much. It's such a, such a pleasure having you. Is there anything you would like to plug or, or tell people about that, you should, that you're doing? No, no, no. No, <laughs> no, no. no, no. <laughs> just, just that we're really, really busy in our roles. <laughs> <laughs> You need a raise. You need a raise. <laughs> okay, yeah. Guys, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the great Hannah Silver up next on The Culture Laser. Hello, everybody. It's the Multicolor Cultural Laser. We travel the world for the boys and the girls. Casting parts of wonder and amazement. Multicolor. Cultural laser.
actually find the term avant-garde pretty retro. It makes me think about, you know, 60s, 70s poets or sound, sound poets. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, so I think it's a bit of a strange um, term uh, that doesn't really mean new. Hilariously backward, ironically yeah. backward looking yeah. for something that yeah. is trying to convey yeah. the future. Yeah, and I think the avant-garde at that time, the, the problem was it happened, it exploded, uh, it was great, and then, particularly in this country, it feels like the, the sense is, OK, that's happened now, we've done that, we don't need to do it anymore, now we're going to go back to writing um, quite conservative poetry that fits form or whatever, whatever it is, but we kind of moved stopped doing the sound stuff so the people who do do that are considered you know quite unusual or you know called avant-garde but I kind of wished that all of that experimentation that happened then had just kept going and we kept pulling around with it and kept playing with it so that um, you know there, there was a trajectory and I feel like there kind of isn't much of a trajectory now there's that and then there's some people still doing that kind of shifting it a bit but it's not something that's really come into poetry are you very conscious of that? I mean, you're obviously aware of it. Or are you just doing things that you enjoy? I, you know, I know you can compare my work to um, sound poetry, but I didn't listen to any of those sound poets, Kirchfitters and all these guys. I didn't listen to them until I'd already um, been making my work for a while because actually my, my own practice came out of my um, experience studying music and um, I actually played the recorder. I gave up when I was 20. I went to Amsterdam Conservatory to study it very seriously. And when I gave up, I kept using the articulation techniques. So some of my sound base work uses double tonguing which is that's coming from my technique as a recorder player um, so I then kind of shifted that into into my poetry so really my experimentation with sound and articulations and, and, and that world is coming from music rather than coming from rather than being influenced by sound poets and it's only later that I realised, okay, these these guys did did that kind of thing, and that you know the all the, all of these can be seen, all of those influences can be seen in my work. Well, maybe we should hear an example of your work. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're going to hear prosthetics. Prosthetics. It's it's a piece I I worked on. I, I made quite a few years ago, and it's based on a statistic which was in a program made in the US, um, but it was on British TV. And the statistic is forty percent of those with prosthetic limbs will go back into war. So I just took that one sentence and then um, worked with the vowel sounds from the sentence so or e or e or or e or e or e or or a e or or and then the consonants like and just kept layering it up and just using about four lines from this documentary that i found quite shocking or quite impacting let's let's have a listen Step 
I drank cold water very fast and then I felt sick. The man on the motorbike called me sick and I squatted down and peed in the air to see the colors they were Politics. Politics shows up in your yeah. in your poetry a yeah. lot, and yeah. I guess I mean I guess there's two things. So there's there's this political thing, and then you have the layering and stuff that that happens a lot. I'm wondering how the two in your mind fit together. You've got this poem about the news that you were listening yeah. to the news. It's a cacophony. It's it's mm. overwhelming. Yeah. It's 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 saying everything and it's saying nothing at mm-hmm. the same time. I started being more conscious about making political work just quite recently in the last few years, and um, particularly because I made a solo show called Opposition, which is all um, it's completely composed of political speeches, and I, I started looking at rhetoric and looking at the way in which um, politicians construct language to conceal or convey meaning, and the way rhetoric has changed. R- rhetoric of the past is very different to today's rhetoric, and the way in which I work with layering a voice and with treating words as sound works quite well with that that material because the fact is when you're looking at speeches from today's politicians is that they are it is just noise it's just claptrap they're not actually saying anything they are they're so um repetitive and simple actually in, in the language that they use and the way they they construct their speeches that you that it works quite well to just treat it as music, as noise, and that reveals the emptiness of today's rhetoric. And I think the thing about layers and mul- multiple voices and a kind of overload of information, interestingly, we I think about 10 years ago, I remember seeing a lot of theatre pieces, or performance pieces, and the blurb said, um, you know, that this piece is working, we're living in a media-saturated age, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is such a cliche, every, every blurb is saying this. And I think it's only recently that that started to really be true that that we really are surrounded by all these different messages and voices so in, in a way working with those cut up um, methods of working where I'm taking snippets from from here and there and layering it all together it feels a bit like that's what our in, the inside of our heads are like mm-hmm. when, when we are doing so many things at once and we're you know we've got the tweets and TV and all, all these different different things and it just becomes noise I really like how you deal with politics because there's such a risk in becoming uh, didactic, preaching to a choir. Felt like I was allowed to make my own conclusions about what was being said. Are there poems of yours that are hidden that you've destroyed where you're just like, George W. Bush is a war criminal? (laughs) 
Actually, no. I, I guess I'm very against that. And I think although you can have some great, um, although some poets are brilliant with that, you know, actually, yeah, they are preaching and they get up on stage and they preach and it's very, you know, very exciting. That's not how I work. And I think what interests me in material are things that I don't understand. So partly the reason why I made opposition is not because I had a political view that I wanted to convey, but because I didn't know how I felt about politics is I didn't understand why I couldn't feel passionately about what any of the parties were saying and I wanted to investigate that and I guess with with the Gaddafi poem I think it I think it helps not to know exactly what you want to say because if you know what you want to say you're not going to discover anything unknown um, and with the Gaddafi poem um, yes I, I was aware of, of what was going on there but I didn't I'm not an expert I don't really know about it but just starting with that word Gaddafi ended up being a very political poem in a roundabout way actually I wrote that poem while walking home so the rhythm of the word was a really was part of the compositional process and I did literally write it in my head I'm not going to tell you my name Gaddafi but I am going to tell you my age Gaddafi my age is 10 Gaddafi and I am going to tell you about a game Gaddafi a game that I play Gaddafi I play with my friends Gaddafi you can play it alone Gaddafi or play it with friends Gaddafi Go into a room, Gaddafi. A room with strong walls, Gaddafi. Strong floor and strong ceiling, Gaddafi. And choose a word, Gaddafi. Not any word, Gaddafi, but carefully, Gaddafi. You carefully choose, Gaddafi. An immense word, Gaddafi, with immense meaning, Gaddafi. With immense meaning to you, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. And with your friends, Gaddafi, all together, Gaddafi. Together you chant, Gaddafi. You chant that word, Gaddafi, over and over, Gaddafi, Gaddafi, over and over. We chose a word, Gaddafi. We chose this word, Gaddafi. We chant, Gaddafi, 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 over and over, Gaddafi, 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 together, Gaddafi, 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 loudly, Gaddafi, 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 all through Gaddafi, the night, Gaddafi, and through Gaddafi, the day, Gaddafi, the Gaddafi night, the Gaddafi day, Gaddafi, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. Other words might be quicker, Gaddafi, but this word, Gaddafi, this word takes longer, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. We stay in the room with strong walls, strong floors, strong ceiling, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. For day after day after day, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. Week after week after week, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. Until Gaddafi, at last, Gaddafi. One morning, Gaddafi. One morning. The word is the same as all other words, Gaddafi. But we keep on chanting, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. Until the word loses its meaning completely, Gaddafi. And we keep on chanting, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. We chant our way through this loss of meaning. Until we become a Gaddafi. Of horses galloping, Gaddafi, 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 Gaddafi. I used to get in a lot. I got in a lot of trouble for saying this. He used to be my favorite dictator. Yeah, this is the tricky thing. It's, you know, when I'm looking at rhetoric, you're looking at the way in which people communicate and their belief. And when you see these dictators, and of course it's terrifying. But as performers, um, they are brilliant. The belief that they have in, in what they say is incredible. And really, today's conservative Labour what politicians could learn a lot from that because they, are they were convincing and they were talking to people quite directly and to people's hearts to a way of, of living which to, today's politicians avoid. So, I mean, Churchill's a good example, actually. I think the way in which he constructed language and the vocabulary that he used was very rich and it really um, talked about what it is 
to be alive, what it is to be human. And you can't contrast that more with the Cameron's um, very simple rhetoric or, you know, as if just to make sure that every everyone can understand it. And the ironic thing is nobody understands it. Because the whole goal of these people, I feel like, is to obscure everything so that they can speak both to their core base mm-hmm. of yeah. fundamental believers in whatever insanity yeah. that they're saying, you know, like certainly in America with the conservative politicians, which is all about like kind of shifting the language so that they're like, oh, we get it. We, we, you're not saying what you're going to do, but we can guess what you're mm-hmm. trying. I yeah. can't even articulate yeah. how it works, but there's just yeah. this, it actually requires a leap of faith on any party member mm. that, you know, you, okay, yeah, he, Obama, President Obama will not say he will ban guns, but we want mm. to believe that mm. that's what's going to happen. But he's not going to say, he's never, yeah. he'd never come out and say yeah. that, or at least yeah. in the run-up to the, during an election. Now, yeah. obviously, things are a bit different with gun control, but... Trying to please everyone ends up not saying, you end up not saying anything, nothing is said with conviction. But it's also the, the little piece that I did, um, you know, the stra-ra-ta-shieste, where strikes are wrong, that little snippet, that was coming from Ed, Ed Miliband. And th- this is, I mean, people also talk about our, our politicians um, changing their message because of media, because they know the way it's going to be communicated. And in that example, Miliband gave the same answer over and over again to a series of different questions because he only had one approved answer that could go on the news. And because this was going to be sent out to lots of different news channels, he needed to make sure that that particular answer was broadcast and nothing else. And it ends, he ends up looking like a robot or a puppet who can, you know, only, who is not thinking on his feet. And this is also the, the problem when, when politicians are so careful about what they're saying so they you know, don't get into trouble, they stop thinking. So you, you rarely see, see people constructing thoughts and you rarely see their minds working, which is also quite disturbing because if their minds aren't working, then they are puppets and robots. And <laughs> Stra, ro, ta, shie, sti, we. Negotiations are still underway. The government has acted in a reckless and provocative manner, but it is time for both sides to get around the negotiating table, set aside the rhetoric, and stop this from happening again. So in that, you just totally broke down the sounds. I found that fascinating because you really want to know the answer, especially the way you set it up. Okay, there's this thing he says, and you mm-hmm. just, all we're getting is mm-hmm. that the sounds, the vowels, mm-hmm. and the consonants. How do you start to break those things down? Can you just do it very naturally? Um, so say something. Your your poems are very good and, and fascinating to listen to, and I I want to do it, but I'm afraid because I don't think I can. Your poems are very good and very fascinating, very fa- fascinating to listen to, and I want and I want, but I don't I don't think I can. You can can your po- your po- po- fasc- fa- fasc- t- 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 listen, but I want, to, but 
can't but I don't think I can but I don't I don't but I don't but, 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 but I don't think I can but your your poems are very you're fascinating to listen to listen fast listen fascinating to listen to listen to but I want but I don't but I don't but I don't think I don't think I can I can I can your poetry I can your poems poems I can poems I can poems they're very fascinating poems are to listen to poems I can listen to poems how do you learn to do that is it just the same as somebody sitting in front of the mirror making funny faces until they're like oh yeah I can do that now yeah I think it's just like anything it's practice and I think one thing one of the things that I took from music that some poets don't have is a realization that if, if you want to perform your work you have to practice you know what I like is the drifting in and out of complete sense you know it's there and then it's gone and it's there mm-hmm. not just in in terms of making sounds and in terms of then you get a little sentence you get a little mm-hmm. something that I, the listener can actually latch on to mm-hmm. and i wonder how conscious that is for you to be like okay people are going to need a little something or you as mm-hmm. a performer as a writer needs a little something yeah i, th- I think it's a as, as a writer I, I like working with um words and sentence construction whether that's um breaking it up or using it in in, in a normal way um, i'm i'm not in i'm not a hundred percent interested in just sound sound poetry without any words or but having said that um one of the things that i, I defend a lot is um that sound sound I mean, sound poetry is a tricky label anyway, but, you know, poetry or performance that just works with the sound of language um, does have meaning. There is meaning in sound. There's also another kind of meaning, a literal meaning or semantic meaning um, with words, in words and and sentences. And I'm interested in in that combination or really that there is more to words than meaning, that there is the sound and there is, yeah, the, the words. And I guess I'm interested in how people read the, the work and I mean that in terms of um, how do they hear the work and what meanings do they construct um, and I'd like to give an audience enough for them to be able to construct their own meanings and associations um, and enough to let their own imaginations write if you like in response to my work um, I love watching dance um, performances and one of the reasons I, I love it is as an audience member I feel like I'm sitting there writing I feel there's a whole kind of stream of words coming out of my head um, inspired by the relationships that I see on stage and the movement on stage and I find that really exciting so I'm always interested in making performance that allows a space for meaning so it's not about I don't know the traditional view of a poem that it has a particular meaning and it's up to the audience to figure out what that is Um, it's I don't necessarily know what the meanings are but there are meanings I want there to be meanings and I want people to have their own kind of responses in in some of the work in the kind of work that we're talking about where it's partly sound and partly partly word yeah but I I like working with with words um as much as with sounds and they they come together somebody said to me once he was like yeah it's okay poems don't need to make sense Mm. and and they don't do they no I mean I think if if anyone um has an interpretation or if, if anyone comes up to me and says it you know it reminded me of this or I thought it meant this or you know I'm just very excited by that um you know if there are things that I hadn't uh, hadn't occurred to me at all um that's no problem I think it's when people just go I don't know what to make of that full stop yeah, yeah. um that it that it's a problem you know some people go I've never heard anything like that but I really enjoyed it or I really you know I got this from it in in a way that's why my my solo show opposition was it was a bit easier on audiences because I think people could come out of it and go I get what she was saying about politics so in a way it was a more accessible it was an easier thing for me to sell whereas the 
the piece that I'm working on now, um, theatre piece, Disappearance of Sadie Jones, is, is a much harder sell because I can't really say it's about this, full stop. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what <laughs> the whole Sadie Jones thing is? And that may, would be a good way. And just Well, um, Sadie Jones wants to disappear. I don't tell the audience what's happened to her, but what we see on stage is the last 24 hours of her life. And she comes back and brings her boyfriend and her sister through what was going on in the last 24 hours but it's not what was going on literally in in reality it's what was going on in her head um so we really go into her imagination for pretty much the whole play with snippets of reality but it's really her imagination so i I'd work a lot with overlapping speeches and overlapping texts because that's what her head is like and she's she's battling a lot of things um, inside herself and we're really just seeing her questioning um, how far can you go inside yourself um, and yeah try, trying to get a glimpse into her oh, psyche great. that's great that's great I love it already how far can you go inside yourself no one no one no one knows I know no one sees this skin underneath no one comes with you this far until the bottom of the world falls away as if it were never attached to anything and you and you you have to give me back your words your thoughts will you I'll give you your mind, I'll give you your breath, I'll hurt you, you'll feel something, I'll write on your skeleton, I'll graffiti your bones, I'll give you something, you can touch a broken body, glimpse of me, waiting. I'll catch onto your hair and hang there, swinging. This episode of Culture Laser has been supported with the generous assistance of Creative Scotland. <laughs>